0: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Today on the pod, it was the worst act of aviation terrorism prior to 9-11. On the 38th anniversary of the bombing of Air India Flight 182, we look at Canada's grim record in holding those responsible accountable. Plus, the NHL acts theme nights during warm-ups, arguing they want to keep the focus on the game. The NHL turtle, or is this a much-needed pushback on wokeism? Plus, we look at the long fight to end cosmetic testing on animals as Canada becomes the latest nation to ban the practice. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Let's focus on a very important day. Today marks the 38th anniversary of the bombing of Air India Flight 182. Now, on June 23, 1985, Air India departed Canada for Delhi, India, with 329 passengers and crew, mostly Canadians of Indian ancestry. They included 82 children uh, under the age of 13. Now, deep in the bowels of the plane, hidden among the checked-in luggage, were two suitcase bombs that would detonate in midair Off the coast of Ireland. None of the passengers survived. Now, their tragic fate did not embed themselves deeply in the consciousness of their fellow Canadians either. That, of course, um, has proven true based on a new Angus Reid Institute poll, which has found that nine out of 10 Canadians have little or no knowledge of the incident, while three out of five people under the age of 35 have never even heard of the attack. Now, authorities believe six extremists fighting for an independent homeland sabotaged the Boeing 747. Inderjit Singh Rayat is the only person who has been convicted in relation to the bombing. Joining me now is a journalist who has covered this story from day one. Kim Bolin is an investigative reporter for the Vancouver Sun. Kim, thank you for speaking to us today. My pleasure. For someone who's covered this story extensively, uh, what does today mean for you?
1: I think back to that first night, June 23, 1985, when I was a rookie reporter and, like others in my newsroom, sent out to visit families of local victims. Uh, There weren't that many of them. I think there was uh, just under 10. And we were literally knocking on doors in our 20s, expecting to have them slammed in our faces. And what happened instead was I was invited into the home of a family who had lost uh, someone on that ill-fated flight. And they sat me down at, you know, on the couch. Uh, they served me chai and told me about their relative as devastated family members were weeping all around me. It was very, very profound. And right away, it showed the impact of this terrible tragedy on that family and on so many other families around the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Um- Did you think that the story itself uh, and everything that's unfolded, including a court case, a high-profile court case that came from it, uh, that we would still be talking about it at at this time, 38 years later?
1: I certainly didn't think we'd be talking about it the way we are talking about it as something that many Canadians know nothing about or have completely forgotten about, I didn't think we'd be talking about the fact that only one person was convicted and only of manslaughter when we saw 331 people, most of them Canadians of Indian origin, die in this devastating terrorist attack. So, um, you know, I would have hoped, I think, as a young rookie reporter, that we would be talking about it as part of our history where... The people behind it had all been held to account, and of course that's not what happened mm-hmm.
0: do you think we're better today when it comes to law enforcement in dealing with um, these types of threats threats that sometimes you know uh, our law enforcement has not been the best at uh, assessing uh, because of language and culture um, and many other reasons but do you think we're better at it today as, as a country when it comes to law enforcement and assessing Uh, uh, threats like this?
2: I
1: hope we would be better. And yes, I think likely we would be. You know, having said that, when you reread part of John Major's uh, report after his public inquiry into what went wrong both before and after the bombing, you know, it's pretty startling how this thing could have been prevented, how so many lives could have been saved, how, you know, CSIS was doing surveillance on the key suspects, Telvinder Parmar and Inderjit Rayet, you know, went over to Vancouver Island a couple of weeks before the bombing and didn't even bring a camera. Like, you're doing surveillance on someone and you don't bring a camera with you. And they, you know, thought that what was in fact a test explosion was a gunshot. So there were so many things that just seem, in retrospect, very Keystone copish. Um, you know, not, uh, another surveillance crew missed the BC Ferry, you know, and so missed these events altogether. So it's, still really enrages me when I read through this and see, oh my God, you know, they were following the right people around and couldn't prevent this devastating attack.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, do you think, you know, I, I remember years ago I did a feature on a gentleman named Chandras Kuratri who lived, used to live in Nanaimo and then he lived in Ottawa, but he lost his wife and um, two children. Uh, young kids and he ended up uh, selling everything and moving back to India where he started a a hospital that does cataract surgeries and, and a school as well, educating young kids named after his kids, named after his wife and trying to find purpose in his life after such a tragedy.
1: An amazing man, I have met him. Yeah, yeah. Remarkable he, what he was able to accomplish. Yeah,
0: he, he lives on the east coast of India. I spent a week with him filming and just a phenomenal man but there are many, my conversation with him was that, look, I can't turn things around. And whatever happens in our justice system, what happened? I need to find not closure but purpose in my life. What I, what can I do moving forward? In all the victims that you've spoken to, the, the families of these victims, um, what have you been hearing from them? Because I'm sure you've built a relationship with them over the years. What, what do they say to you today?
1: Well, I think many of them are still frustrated and angry at what's happened. Um, you know, I just was interviewing some more people today about uh, the Angus Reid poll that came out yesterday saying 9 out of 10 Canadians know little or nothing about the Air India bombing. And that doesn't surprise them, but obviously it's hurtful. And I think they still feel like they're forgotten much of the time. Uh, One woman I interviewed said that, you know, when she meets new colleagues at work, you know, and they ask what happened to her mom, and she says, well, she died in this Canadian terrorist attack – they are kind of looking at her like, what are you talking about? They have no idea there was a Canadian terrorist attack. And I just think that compounds the tragedy and the hurt that these victims' families are feeling. Um, I talk to families around the world, some of them I keep in touch with year-round, uh, like Neil Hans in Australia, who you know, was sending me photos of this little shrine that he set up on his dining room table. His father was uh, one of the pilots, Mm-hmm. on the plane, and, you know, there's a picture of his dad with candles and flowers, and it's it's uh, almost like a weird little club that we have of people that know uh, all the details about Air India, and I'm happy as a journalist to be someone who families can always reach
0: out to. Well, Kim, uh, I know you spent so many years uh, covering this story, and you continue to do so, and I do appreciate all the effort and work you put into it, and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks very much, Jess.
0: I do want to let everybody know uh, that um, family and friends will be gathering uh, tonight at 6.30 uh, in Stanley Park uh, as they commemorate um, the bombing uh, of Air India Flight 182. Uh, The event occurs at uh, Stanley Park's Separately Playground. At 6.30. Joining me now is Dave Hare. He's a former Surrey MLA. He's also the son of Dada Singh Hare. Mr. Hare uh, was the founder of the Indo-Canadian Times. He was shot to death uh, in the garage of his home in Surrey in November of 1998. Um, it wasn't the first time Mr. Hare had, been, Hare had been a victim in 1988, a decade earlier, and an assassination attempt left him partially paralyzed. Many believe the perpetrator, a teenager who was convicted and sentenced to 14 years in jail for being deported, was part of a militant group offended by the publisher's condemnation of that uh, Air India bombing in uh, 1985. Dave Hare, as I said, is a former Surrey MLA, and he joins us now. Dave, thank you for speaking to us today. No problem, Jazz. How are you? I'm very good. Uh, tell me what uh, today represents for you.
3: Well, uh, today is a very sad day. You know, it's been 38 years since 331 innocent human beings were killed. 82 of them were children, and uh, they were uh, most of them were Canadian citizens. Uh, and um, these people had nothing to do with any politics. Uh, they didn't do any anything wrong against anybody they were just enjoying their time going to meet the families in india two baggage handlers were in tokyo narita airport that went went uh, the bomb went off uh, a little early otherwise they were intended to go to second area, connect to alien flight that was killed to probably another 329 people so it reminds us uh and that, uh, you know, our justice system, even though we are uh, one of the best countries in the world to live in, but the justice system is not really there to protect the victims mm-hmm. because all these victims, 331 and the family and friends feel justice has not been served as only one person was ever convicted. And later on, he made a deal with the prosecution that he will testify the information he had. And uh, he got only five years for killing uh, 29 people, the 8 India bombing. And then he lied at the stand when he got there to testify. And the judge said he lied. Then later on, he got nine more for lying. And everybody else is free walking. It's sad, especially when RCMP and CISA they were all watching all these suspects who were involved in the India bombing and planning. And this bomb was made right here in Duncan, where, where Indira Singh right lived, who mm-hmm. made it, and were all under eyes of our... Uh, law enforcement agency. And yeah, Kim Bolin was just,
0: just mentioning um, uh, what you were just saying. Um, the issue of this new Angus Reid Institute poll that found that 9 out of 10 Canadians have little or no knowledge of the incident, 3 out of 5 uh, people under the age of 35 in Canada have never even heard of the attack. Um, what need, do you think needs to be done? Uh, so that Canadians don't forget that this was the largest yeah. case of aviation terrorism prior to nine prior eleven, and it happened on Canadian soil.
3: Yeah, uh, yeah, this is uh, the worst uh, aviation uh, bombing in Canadian history, and before nine eleven, the worst in the world history yeah. uh, in the aviation. And I think the problem is that most the politicians don't want to really talk about it, regardless which party they belong to. They rather talk about other murders. They might be few or in dozens, but in this case, 331 people were killed. The bomb made from here, and I think 286 were Canadian citizens. You know. And, uh, but mostly, it's very difficult to get the politicians to talk about it, and uh, because they think they might offend some people who might have supported some of the people who might have, who accused of being involved in the Air India bombing, and uh, so nobody covers it. It's not in schools. It's really not in uh, anybody else. Uh, uh, when you talk about it, uh, even when the anniversary of Air India Memorial comes up, uh, very little time is given by the politicians at our level to really talk about it. When other tragedies that have happened before, people have died, they run after uh, trying to get ahead of each other to make the biggest statements possible, the loudest statement possible, so they can be heard. But in the uh, Air India case, uh, for the longest time, Canada... The Canadian government thought it was India's problem, even though the bomb was made here, put in the airplane here, and most people killed were Canadians. And I think that is part of the problem. And uh, as long as I've been alive, I'm continue, I'm going to continue uh, to remind people about uh, this sad day, uh, and then uh, keep remembering, and then praying for all those victims and the families, and hopefully people will remember and like yourself and some of the media have talked about it today uh, it probably got more coverage today than last number of years uh, and, uh, but on the other hand if we talk about it we will not have a tragedy like this repeated again yeah. otherwise when you forget about it you don't talk about it and uh, you're likely to have another tragedy uh, and people uh small few number of people who are extremists and sadly terrorists uh, will do something uh, to the innocent people and we cannot allow any terrorists uh to, with any terrorism act regardless where they are it doesn't matter if they're in canada Uh, India, Pakistan, uh, in in Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, or England, or United States, or Europe, or other part of the world, we should condemn all the terrorists who create uh, act.
0: uh, Uh, Dave, we've got got about. we have got about thirty seconds left. I just want to confirm. So, um, family and friends are meeting uh, today, Uh, and once again, that's at six thirty at separately playground uh, at the Air India Memorial in Stanley Park. Am I correct?
3: Yes, that is very correct. And then, matter of fact, if you Google it, it will show you where the location is. And usually, people start coming around six o'clock and six thirty. The service will start with the prayer service, and some of the family members will be speaking after that at six thirty onward.
0: Dave, thanks for your time
3: today. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for reminding people of this worst crime in Canada's history. Right. Uh, Especially in aviation. Uh, thank you very much on behalf of all the victims' family for passing the message to the rest of the community. Thanks so much, Dave. That,
0: that is Dave Hare. He's a former Surrey MLA and, and has been involved uh, in uh, the Air India Memorial and continues to raise uh, his voice in regards to uh, those who still uh, have not been captured or convicted uh, for this crime. Alright, well let's talk politics for a second. It's a busy weekend. There are two by-elections uh, in British Columbia. Uh, one of them, of course, in Langford-Wan de Fuca, uh, which of course was once represented by the former Premier of British Columbia, John Horgan, and of course another by-election will be held uh, Saturday as well in Vancouver, Mount Pleasant, uh, where at one point it was represented by Melanie Mark, former NDP Cabinet Minister. Joining me now uh, is Richard Zussman, BC's legislative reporter. Talk a little bit about uh, the, the those two by-elections and what uh, it all means in regards to what we can expect. Richard, thank you for joining us.
4: Yeah, my pleasure, Josh. Thanks for having
0: me. So uh, both writings represented uh, by uh, NDP MLAs uh, prior to the by-election here. I'm going to assume this is still the NDPs to lose in both cases.
4: Yeah, these are in the business, what we call safe seats, Jazz. And it doesn't get any safer for the NDP than Vancouver Mount Pleasant. So, in some ways, this is a little bit of a dry run for the Premier. He's been out campaigning uh, with Joan Phillip, the local candidate there, also here on the island with Ravi Parmar in Langford, Wanda Fuca. Uh, Premier doesn't have any experience as the leader on the campaign trail having just won the leadership uh, back in the fall. And so he's used this by election as a chance to get out to meet some people uh, to maybe test out a few lines. Although a lot of that is waiting until we get closer to the next scheduled election, which is the fall of next year. But, you know, we expect that both of these will be relatively comfortable wins uh, for the NDP in replacing both Horgan and Mark
0: in the legislature for when uh, we have the session starting here in October. Now, uh, in Langford, the Green Party generally comes in second, or certainly last time it did, right?
4: Yeah, the Greens came in second to both of these ridings in the last election. So, by-elections, as you are acutely aware, are all about comparing and contrasting. And, we know that turnout is going to be low the weather is supposed to be outstanding tomorrow Uh, that is going to mean people would rather spend their day in a park or a beach uh, or the soccer field than at the polling station Uh, but if you live in either of those ridings and you're listening i encourage you go out and vote have your voice heard Uh, but ultimately because there's no major issues here i expect the turnout will be low but we'll have to watch some of those trends right the bc greens uh, are going to want to ensure that they end up in second to both of those places. But more importantly, I think we're looking at a little bit further down the ballot and what uh, happens to BC United. This is Mm -hmm. the first time, Jazz, the candidates are running under that banner. Uh, We've seen in both ridings the new signs. They're testing out the colors. Uh, They're trying out this pink and teal blue. They also have some signs with black. They have some signs with Kevin Falcon, the leader's picture on them, some with the candidates. They're testing all of this out to see how it resonates. But I think the more crucial factor is the fact there are Conservative Party of BC candidates running in both ridings as well. In 2020, there were no Conservative candidates in either riding, so we'll see how they do and how much of that vote they pull away from BC United, previously the BC Liberals, because that's going to be so crucial in the next election. Maybe it won't mean, you know, BC United Uh, or the Conservatives win any seats, but it very well could mean the BC United does not. So that's going to be one of the things I'll be watching really closely tomorrow.
0: Uh, I'm curious, if for some reason there is some sort of miracle and the BC Conservatives uh, come out in third in either of these (laughs) ridings, it doesn't change the ultimate outcome, it's still probably going to be NDP, we don't know, but most people suspect based on past history, Um, what what would that mean uh, for BC United and specifically for Kevin Falcon?
4: every marketing firm in bc should be ready to take a phone call from kevin falcon on sunday with the question how do i brand myself as bc united and let voters know who we are and what we stand for because if they end up behind the bc conservatives clearly whatever they're doing hasn't worked and i don't think anyone is expecting that Uh but i know there is some nervousness around how strong the conservatives may be Karen Litschke, the candidate in Mount Pleasant, got some attention for raising the issue of uh, transgender athletes and uh, participating in the sport of your biological birth. Uh, It is an issue that is a bell whistle in the United States that brings out transphobes and homophobes and has been hugely polarizing, and that debate is happening now in part because of that issue raised in the by-election. We'll see if that has resonated with any voters at all. Uh, But if the BC United and BC Conservatives are anywhere close, BC United is going to go to the drawing board and say, okay, we have a year plus to the next provincial. How do we explain to the electorate what this party is, what we stand for, who we are? and uh, how can we right this ship in some regards. These writings are are tough for the party, but it's all about those trend lines. And in politics, you always want to be having that forward momentum and hopefully peak at the time of a general election. You don't want to peak at the time of a by-election, but you do want to be ready to peak for when that general election of British Columbians vote in what will be 93 ridings in the next provincial election, up from 87.
0: Yeah, it is going to be interesting. I, mean, I think uh, the BC United hasn't had enough time to really solidify the name, the brand, um, and uh, and I'm, I'm sure we'll be they'll be introducing new candidates over the summer months as well for the variety of ridings. Like the, as you said, these are strong NDP ridings, but I think there is a bit of nervousness there. Like you know, Mr. Polyev does have. Some support and has a high uh, profile, and I think some of that does wear off on BC Conservatives locally. Um, how much I don't know, um, but there sure certainly will be a little bit. But I think everybody will be looking at the, the outcome and 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 sort of take a look at in regards to what this means moving forward. But I think that with the barbecue season coming in politics, and then of course the I think the BC United will be uh, unveiling new candidates in the next few months. So uh, it's going to be very interesting because um, the drumbeat now begins for. The provincial election. One could argue also, Richard, when you look at the issues of affordability, of housing, of crime, uh, there's a lot of churn out there. People are not happy with the prices when it comes to everyday living. They're not happy with the fact that housing costs have gone up. They're not feeling safe in some of our communities, especially in our downtown areas. You see it in Nanaimo. You can see a certain degree here in Vancouver as well. A lot of these issues are really tough to solve in six months or a year. And that's what Mr. Eby has before him too. So one could argue, you know, whether or not Mr. Falcon does well here is irrelevant. The broader issues, the broader themes seem to be swinging his way. Yeah, it's fascinating looking at the
4: polling because on one hand, people are saying they are frustrated with the way government is dealing with all of these issues you mentioned, public safety, housing, affordability, healthcare. And the other hand, the favorability numbers for David Eby and the NDP continue to be extremely high. Does that erode over time as frustration grows? I would expect it would. So the job of the NDP will be to try to stop that bleeding before it hurts them electorally. So, but the window's tight, as you describe, it's tight to change people's minds, but more importantly, it's tough, tough tight to really get to some solutions. So, we, we saw a little bit of that in the by-election, but I really expect we we'll are start seeing as we go into the fall and we have that one year up from election, there's going to be a real charted course here from the government around managing priorities in the short term, but also having their eyes set on that next election and the sort of benchmarks they need to hit. Incumbency is always tough, you know. Mm-hmm. We know that uh, governments often lose power rather than oppositions win them. And uh, holding on to power and trying to present new ideas always leads to the voter saying well if you have new ideas now why didn't you just do them when you were in power so i expect that over the next year we're going to see eb sort of manage through that tricky situation propose some solutions but also save some stuff up for the campaign when uh he will know that uh, british columbians are, are are
0: closely watching richard thank you my pleasure as always have a great weekend just Well, pride jerseys are a thing of the past, at least when it comes to seeing them on NHL ice surfaces. Special jerseys of any kind, in fact, are no longer allowed to be worn by NHL teams uh, during warm-ups. The decision was made by the NHL Board of Governors meeting, uh, following the NHL Board of Governors meeting, and is a clear response to multiple players refusing to wear their team's pride jerseys. Um, Last season, that included uh, Eric and Mark Stahl from the Florida Panthers, San Jose Sharks goaltender James Reimer, Philadelphia Flyers defenseman Ivan Provorov uh, refusing to wear pride jerseys, citing religion as the reason for not participating uh, last season. Joining me to talk a little bit about this issue, many have said, look, uh, you know, sports should stick with sports and leave all those bigger issues that we are talking about and consulting and, and, and debating to uh, the outside world. Sports is supposed to be, well, it's not the place where we bring politics uh, and other issues uh, to the forefront, whether it's the courts or it's the gridiron, whether it's the ice, and leave that in the outside world. We go to sports to get away from all that stuff. Joining me now to talk about this issue is Rob Fea of Sports Broadcaster. Rob, thank you for joining us.
2: Well, thank you, Jazz.
0: Well, what are your thoughts on all this? Uh, I was a bit taken aback, uh, to be honest with you, because over the last few years, uh, especially here with the Vancouver Canucks, you've seen uh, Pride jerseys worn. There's been the um, South Asian um, Heritage Recognition Night. They recognize the Chinese community as well, an Indigenous night uh, as well. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Board of Governors here deciding that, look, we're no, no longer going uh, to allow for NHL teams having to wear warm-up jerseys?
2: I think a lot of this had to do with the Players Association because that's usually where the players take their grievances and then the association represents them to the Board of Governors. So I could see this one coming a mile away. As soon as you saw certain players within certain organizations say that they weren't going to do it, and then you had three NHL teams that said, we're not going to do any of this, uh, you could kind of see the writing on the wall. But the frustrating part is we talk about the fact that they're still going to be able to do Pride nights, quote unquote, but the players just won't have to partake in said. Uh, you know, utilizing these jerseys. And that for me is the tough part to swallow in the sense that these are the players that we support. This is a city that we support them in and we want them to express their beliefs or even lack thereof. We support the team. We want that support back, right? So if you want my dollar as a, as a ticket buying fan, I want you to support the things that go on in my community and are important to me. So sure. We're still going to see the Canucks doing their thing, but those players represent us they represent all of our community in an inclusive community and i think that's why it's a hard pill to swallow today um
0: do you think the nhl looked at that though i mean it is trying to broaden uh, its appeal to uh, a wider cross-section of society uh, and it is an aging or sorry, changing society uh demographic changes as well uh do you think this holds holds the nhl back now
2: well, I think the safety net is that they say the organizations can still take part in all of these different endeavors. But the reality is, is we look to these players. So that's essentially where the, you know, the pavement hits the rubber in the fact that, sure, the organization is still going to be able to, you know, acknowledge Indigenous Knights or, you know, Cancer Knight or in this case Pride Knight. But the reality is, is we want those players, we want those faces that represent the teams that we cheer for to take part in this. So the fact that they're not going to be on the ice, and again, Jazz, it's just a practice jersey it's not even a in-game jersey but i think it's the premise of them not having to take this up or having the man if you will the nhl saying you don't have to take part in it and they announced it jazz on pride month which to me is poor timing but that's just an aesthetic but yeah i could see why people are up in arms but i can see both sides of the story Mm -hmm. and uh, the nhl was really between a rock and a hard place
0: when you when you think of what the nhl has just done um, you look at let's say uh the whole Colin Kaepernick issue with um, with the the NFL and, and and black lives matter uh even the, the NBA which is always viewed as uh, very diverse and uh, uh, has a you know unique talent to tap in the broader cultural zeitgeist um you know, phil jackson uh, a, a well-known coach uh former coach of the chicago bulls la lakers time in new york as well i think he's won 11 championships he was actually joking on a podcast that look that the, even the a- a- nba has gotten too woke that people go there to get away from politics do you think there is a, a buildup perhaps and, and, and mindset, look, sports has got to get away from some of this stuff and leave that to, to, to the politicians, leave that to activists. And let's just be a place that actually takes you away from the real world just for a moment. And you can go cheer on your team.
2: Yeah, you know, I worked for a sports organization in the city for several years that didn't acknowledge Pride Night because they thought that every night was Pride Night. And I understand the premise of not needing a specific moment to identify a group within our community. But that said, if you are going to be of the community, then you need to be of the community. And I think this is the challenge that a lot of people are facing is they feel like we've made such great strides to get into that big, brash, bravado world of sports. And we finally got inclusion. We finally jumped that hurdle only to have it pulled back because what a lot of people will say, well, just a handful of players have ruined it for everybody. And. You know, I can understand that on both sides, and the fact that from a corporate perspective, you don't want to get into that muddy water. Mm-hmm. It's just you just want to focus on the tickets, you want to focus on the product. But here's the problem, Jazz: if you're going to sell yourself to be of the community and for the people, mm-hmm. then that includes taking on moments like this. And the fact that they receded on that so quickly without doing further market research, I think, is a part of the reason that people are really struggling with this decision.
0: Now, earlier today, Jag Nagra, who uh, designed the first Diwali jersey for the Vancouver Canucks. 2021 was uh, on Jill Bennett show uh, a few hours ago. Take a listen to what she had to say uh, in regards to this announcement by the NHL.
5: I, I don't think they understand how this is going to affect different cultural groups or different people that are belong to marginalized groups. It's already a predominantly white, straight uh, environment, right? Hockey players are typically, you know, um, white players. And for us to be able to feel like we belong on that kind of arena, like, it, it's just a huge blow to, like, so many different communities. It's really disappointing.
0: That is uh, Jag Nagra. She designed the first Diwali the jersey for the Vancouver Canucks in uh, in 2021. I mean, when you look at these jerseys that they people like Jag Nagra have produced, the uh, one for uh, Lunar New Year, uh, the one for Indigenous communities, and a variety of other communities, uh, they they are beautiful, and I've talked to many people who do want to purchase. They're not official jerseys, of course. They're practice jerseys. People do want to purchase them, and they are quite expensive. So there is a market out for for this, and I think, Robby, you raise a very good point that it is about inclusivity. I'm curious in your mind, um, you know, the Canucks have been sort of leaders in this to a certain degree. Um, the broader issue of just demographics, Vancouver's demographics, North America's demographics, they're multi-ethnic now. Uh, in a city like Vancouver I think 52 percent are people of color I think uh, Toronto is past 60 percent now major suburbs like um, Surrey is 64 percent Richmond is 74 percent I think it's leading North America in the case of Richmond Vancouver sixty percent four percent of this minority Um it seems to me there is a problem for the NHL, as Ms. Nagra said, that the the, the players look a certain way and society looks a lot different, differently. Do you think there's a broader demographic
2: challenge for hockey? Well, yeah. I mean, what Vancouver is is definitely not what they're experiencing in Florida or in New York or in Arizona. I mean, this is the problem. You've got a huge geographical reach that the NHL has to appease. And I look at Vancouver, for example, and the first thing that I thought when I heard this announcement is like, cool, they're not going to wear the practice jerseys. What's the workaround? And I think that organizationally is something that they can look at and say, okay, well, the NHL doesn't want us to wear these jerseys on the ice and they don't want our players in them, at least on the ice for the pregame. What can we do? to continue to progress this conversation without necessarily having to step on the toes of the NHL. So I'm very curious to know the organizations that can truly get creative with this moment will win their fan base back. But if they just hide behind the eight ball and say, listen, well, that's what the NHL said, that's going to have the fans in uh, in a tizzy. And uh, so I'm very curious to know what the Canucks do to offset this decision by the NHL.
0: We are speaking to Rob Fay, a sports broadcaster. We're talking about the NHL deciding to axe uh, theme nights during warm-ups arguing they want to keep the focus on the game. Some of us said, that's great. Uh, we should be focusing just on sports. Others said, uh, look, wait a minute here. The NHL turtled uh, under uh, pressure from a small vocal minority. Give us a call on the open line, 604-280-9898. Star 9898 on your cell phone. Let's go to the open line. Let's go to Rick in Port Moody. Hi, Rick.
6: Hey, gentlemen. Thanks for taking my call.
0: Uh, boy, Rob, you are just pr- prolific. I I,
6: uh, I remember talking to you about this when you were on the Joe show a couple of weeks ago. Um, I mean, what, what what do you say? This is um, uh, you know, I guess it's an indication that um, you know, that balance point has, has been reached. I mean, look what happened with Budweiser. Look what happened with Target and uh, Starbucks did the, uh, you know, pull back everything themselves. Elon Musk yesterday has banned the word cis and cisgender because it's a it's a hate word there just seems to be this some um, this movement that's saying okay you know we we've, we've had enough we uh, and we want to just get on with our lives and be it doesn't mean we don't support you it's just the, the, the noise the narrative is is never ending and um to your other point as to how the connects can do this, I mean certainly you know the orca can be dressed in in the jersey, and the kids in between the hawk in between the intermissions can be dressed in in the jerseys but uh, it's um uh, yeah i I just think people are want to get on with some simple things without having a cause that 's always ringing in
0: their ears, and it 's not disrespectful to to the cause themselves. Uh, Rick, I'm just curious, did the the jerseys offend you? Did you think it was just too much folk?
6: No, yes, I'm I'm not offended at at all by any of this. matter of fact, just watching human nature, it's really interesting Mm -hmm. to see how this is coming along, because really, if you look at it, the exact same um, method of protest that was used originally by the, you know, the side that 's now complaining about it is is now been adopted by by the opposite side, so you're really seeing the same tactics that were used by party. That's complaining now versus, you know, how they were, the action years ago. So I, I just look at this from a human perspective and, and I try to understand it from, from that level as opposed to picking sides one way or the other. I mean, God, I support everyone and, and I give it, I hope everyone has their right to do whatever they want,
0: how they want to do it. Rick, thank just- you. Thanks for your call. I appreciate hmm. it, my friend. Uh, Rob, yeah, I mean, Rick's got a point um, and I don't think it's has to do with NHL. In fact, I just, I think there is that broader cultural war uh, that is Ongoing, he uh, you know he brought up the issue of Budweiser, and that's an American thing that spills over into Canada, the debate and all that. It seems to me almost like the NHL uh, has they've done what they've done. It's a small group of uh, players, but I think it's the broader culture war that is somehow spilling over to not only just sports but other products as well.
2: Yeah, there's a couple of points here, Jazz, that I think I, I just want to get across. Sports is a catalyst for change. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. that says they want to keep politics out of sports. I mean, you can go back to the Berlin Olympics. You can talk Colin Kaepernick, Michael Sam, who was the first gay football player in the NFL. I mean, these are things that, that fans Muhammad and Ali, is Muhammad Ali. Well, yeah, I mean, we could, we could do a roll call of this. But, Jazz, here's a question that I have for you and for the listeners. What are we really asking of the NHL? I think a lot of people in the LGBTQ community are simply looking for the acknowledgement that they're a part of the community. That's it. Yep. They're not asking for all of these people to come and, and go above and beyond. Just say, hey, over the course of your 41 home games this year, spend one night and at least let me know that I'm a part of your conversation. So, what? They're going to, it's not even a game jersey, it's a practice jersey, but it's just the thought process that now that you've given us something that we can hang our hat on as a community, mm-hmm. you're going to take that back. And that to me is the challenge challenge. challenge here. It's optics, but more than anything, again, I go back to the same thing I've said right from the beginning of this conversation, Jess, if you're going to say you're of the community, then you need to be of the community and you can't take steps back like this.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Let's go to Cameron and Chilliwack. Hi, Cameron.
2: Hey, fellas. How are you today? Doing well. What's on your mind? Hey, excellent. You know,
7: I, well, first off, what this is, is cowardice. There's no other way to say it. Um, So there's that, that's that's my take on it. But also to I find it really odd that the that the NHL would simply say to the lead, to the teams you can't do anything. I think that they should have lifted up to the teams. Um, I think that would have been the best way to go. And the way I'll put it, I'll take it out of out of contact, you know, out of a different context. Like say, for example, the seven a Seminole day. That would mean nothing to someone here in Vancouver, but it might mean something might mean everything to someone in Florida who's a Seminole. Um, so I think it's really odd that they just kind of blankly said no because let's see what this really is because you know you had some people that wouldn't wear the jersey and by the way in my world if they didn't wear the jersey they wouldn't play and they would have been fined for the day that they didn't play um that's all there is And, and and i'm saying this as a as a born and raised christian there is nothing in our faith that says there's anything wrong with 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 uh with the LGBT with the lgbtq community yeah. Cameron, thank you for your call. I think you raised, uh, you, you hit it on the head
0: there, Robert said, just saying, look, we acknowledge you as a member of our community. And, and these are practice jerseys. But you know what? A lot of folks are buying them of those communities. These are two or $300 jerseys. People wanted them because they got excited the fact that they were recognized and that, you know, here's a team that they support. They cheer for them. But they probably don't see a lot of folks that look like them. In those games, uh, over the decades that they've watched or whatever time they've watched, but the fact that they can acknowledge somebody of Chinese heritage, of South Asian heritage, LGBTQ+, indigenous communities, whatever it may be, military personnel, whatever it may be, it's, 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 it's um, I think they missed the mark on this one. I think it's just been too sweeping, and it just seems that, the, once again, the NHL could have, done a, could have done something with this, but they, they just fell short, in my opinion.
2: Well, imagine being somebody from an Indigenous community or a South Asian community or gay and all of a sudden seeing that player that you've loved, all of a sudden step out from the locker room wearing something that shows that they acknowledge you, that you are a part of the collective. That, to me, is what speaks to the community. And having the NHL, as you mentioned, Jazz, blanket cover this, this to me is a problem. But I have faith in the Canucks. I have faith in these teams around the NHL Mm -hmm. that even though this has been taken away from them, there are more than a number of ways that they can make up for this. So I'm curious to know how the Canucks in particular mm-hmm. handle this. And, and I, I look forward to seeing their creativity.
0: Yeah, uh, likewise. Uh, Rob, thank you so much, my friend. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. You too, Jazz. Thanks. Well, let's focus a little bit on animals. Uh, Yesterday, um, cosmetic testing on animals was officially banned in Canada. That's because Bill C-47 is a piece of legislation that was passed by the Canadian government. And on Thursday, uh, it received royal assent. It is now law. It uh, prohibits also the selling of cosmetics that rely on new animal testing data to establish a product's safety. Joining me to talk a little bit about um, the ban of Cosmetic Testing on Animals, uh, and this new law is Rebecca Breder. She's an animal rights lawyer. R- uh, lawyer. Uh, Rebecca, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jess. Thanks
5: for the invite.
0: Uh, hey, no problem. So, uh, you know, when I was reading this, it's quite funny, I, uh, right away I thought of you. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Your, your thoughts on all this, like this, this, uh, this actually receiving royal assent and now being law.
5: Well, I will certainly be having a glass of wine this evening (laughs) in honor of the millions of animals that will no longer go through horrendous torture and pain and suffering for the purpose of cosmetics in Canada. And this is a really, really good thing. It's a long time coming. Animal advocates and, and industry, some industry as well, have been actually working on this for almost a decade, if not longer, actually longer, but really working on trying to pass bills through the the House of Commons, working with politicians and and a number of different political parties. And it actually finally went through. And what's really amazing is that, well, first of all, this is what we're talking about right now. It's, It's the federal ban on animal testing for cosmetic purposes. But what also happened last week was that the Senate approved... Um another legislation, it's not in effect yet, and it's still in the works, but another legislation that will phase out chemical toxic- toxicity testing on animals. So another form of animal testing that's done in Canada and elsewhere in the world for that matter. So together, these laws are literally going to be saving millions of animals a year in Canada from going through... Things that you cannot even imagine, animals go through on a daily basis. Hmm.
0: Why uh, has it taken this long in your mind?
5: Well, <laughs> a really good question, a bit loaded question, um, because it's it, there's for this particular ban. I think, in all seriousness, it it wasn't easy for the government to do as easy as some of us in the animal rights movement may think. Come on, just ban it. Yeah. But there are a lot of stakeholders. There's, there are a number of different industry stakeholders as well. And what's important is I think, yes, it took a long time, uh, but the government more or less got it right. It's not a perfect law. But what this legislation does is it, it bans not only the, the testing itself, but the selling of cosmetics that were tested on animals and reading through the actual legislation as well,
6: mm-hmm.
5: what's, what's really interesting is that, you know, I was trying to find, okay, where are the loopholes? Where are the loopholes? And I'm sure those will become, th- there will be some eventually. But right now, one of the things that we cared about a lot was also, well, what about to, when we sell, we like in the companies in Canada sell to, to places outside of Canada? What about then? Mm-hmm. Well, there's, there's provisions in here that prohibits that as well. And it prohibits what was what a lot of companies were were doing as well, is that they were I'm sure you've seen the little rabbit sticker Mm -hmm. on products and stores Mm -hmm. that cruelty free. Well, a lot of companies were putting that on. But what they were doing is that although they technically didn't have a lab themselves, they hired contractors or subcontractors to test their products on animals. Well, right now there's a provision in there. That if there is any kind of, you're not allowed to mislabel or to to falsely advertise that your product was tested on animals if it wasn't. And if the government wants to look into it, there's a provision in there that allows the government to do that. And the company has to prove to the government that their product actually wasn't tested. So it's legislation that was actually thought through pretty well. Mm -hmm. with input from a variety of stakeholders.
0: What happens to the cosmetics industry now in regards to testing of their products? Have they, uh, in the past, in the near past, talked about what other things they can do to test their products without having to test on animals?
5: Yes, and there's certainly, there are definitely alternatives. They were, in the 21st century, There are non-animal testing alternatives, and they are still being developed. There are many that have been tested and tried successfully. I mean, there are things like computational models that that really try to emulate human biology in in a Petri dish. So, for example, making human skin in vitro. The technology is there to do that so that you don't have to test on mice and rats and guinea pigs and dogs. And primates anymore to get the results that you need. And, and what people really need to understand is that well-known, reputable scientists have been saying for years that testing on animals is actually dangerous <laughs> for human health because the vast majority of testing that's done on animals fails in human clinical trials, It's just it's been such a part of our culture around the world to test on animals that it's just the way it's been done. But it doesn't have to be done like that anymore, especially when we have modern technology that provides safe and better outcomes for human health. Yeah,
0: A great day, that's for sure. Rebecca, thank you so much for your time. Have yourself a wonderful weekend.
5: Thank you. You too.